Good morning again. You came back. Must be the accent. When I preached my first sermon in Australia, a lady in the church came up to me afterwards and said, um, oh, I just loved, loved listening to you, your accent. It's that lilting uh, tone. She said, I could just fall asleep when I hear you speak. <laughs> and so you did very well last night. No, I didn't see any of you falling asleep or you just are able to sleep with your eyes open. So, um, well, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And we'll read the whole chapter together. Let us hear the word of our God. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what, he, what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim that they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. 
He will lead people across in sandals. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Flowers fade and the grass withers, but the word of our Lord, uh, the word of our Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Father, your mercies are new every morning. Your steadfast love never ceases. And so we pray that you would come now and by your Holy Spirit remind us of your great love for us in this part of Isaiah. May we see your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus, in all his glory and the world in which he is taking us to. And we ask this in his name, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praise. Amen. Utopia. Utopia. An imagined world of near perfection. <clears throat> Sir Thomas More, the Catholic humanist, coined the term in 1516 when he wrote his book, Utopia. It was a fictional work describing an imaginary island society in the Atlantic Ocean, and the island was called Utopia. <clears throat> Sir Thomas More <clears throat> coined the word by joining together two Greek words, ou, O-U, meaning no, and topos, meaning place, utopia. So it was spelled O-U-topia. It means no place. It's a fantasy place. It doesn't exist. And Sir Thomas More wrote a book about a place that was no place, a fantasy place, a place which didn't exist, but... He was playing on the word because, uh, in English, utopia sounds exactly like the Greek word utopia, eu-topia. And eu in Greek means good. So you have a no place, utopia, and utopia is a good place. Utopia means a good place and more intended to play on these words because he was painting his island utopia this fantasy place, as a good place, as a perfect place. And that's where we get the English word utopia from, an imagined world of near perfection, an idealized society. And that's what we all long for, isn't it? Who doesn't long for a better society, a good society? Who doesn't long for utopia? The longing is expressed in different ways in our cultures. Just think of some of our national anthems. The British national anthem, God Save Our Queen. The final verse of many a race and birth from utmost ends of earth. God save us all. Bid strife and hatred cease. Bid hope and joy increase. Spread universal peace. God save us all. I won't ask you to stand and sing it with me. But you get the point, don't you? Utopia. It's there in your national anthem. Third verse. Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their lo loved homes and their war's desolation, blessed with victory and peace. May the heaven-rescued land praise the power that has made and preserved us a nation. It's 
then conquer we must when our cause it is just, and this be our motto in God is our trust, and the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave over the land of the free and the land of the brave. Notice that phrase, the heaven-rescued land. What our national anthems long for? Some kind of utopia. You hear it from politicians all the time. Uh, since he came into office, President Trump has had one vision for America, which is to make America great again. It's an utopian ideal. We all long for it. But as you read history, you begin to see that Sir Thomas More was on to something. His island of utopia, a no place, is not utopia. Because utopia, a good place, a perfect place, can't be reached. Utopia is utopia, a no place, doesn't exist. Just look at the news on a weekly basis. Listen to the crime, the murders, the lies, the corruption. Just look around the world. Iraq and Syria still in a mess fighting against ISIS. Just look at the monsoon rains in India. Just look at Africa with the famine and drought and the infighting. Can we really make the world great again? Can we make America great again? Can we ever reach utopia? If human history is anything to go by, no, we can't. It's a pipe dream. It's more like utopia, a no place. doesn't exist. And yet, Isaiah chapter 11 presents us with just such a place. Here is biblical utopia. Here's the ideal place. Look at verse 6 to 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall be, lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Those words come in the context of God's announcement of judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. Remember last night we saw how judgment is coming to Judah, to Jerusalem. Foreigners are going to invade the land, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And they will desolate their land. They will burn their cities. They will cut them down like a tree felled in the desert. The death of Uzziah after his reign made them vulnerable because Assyria was rising in power under Tiglath-Pileser III. Judgment was coming. But the message of Isaiah was not just judgment. Remember the two-beat rhythm? Judgment, salvation. That's the two-beat rhythm of Isaiah. Judgment, then salvation. Salvation through judgment. God was going to bring his people into judgment. But he was also going to use that judgment as a purification, as we saw in our first talk last night. It was going to be a judgment of reviving, as we saw in our second talk. The stump would remain, 
and a little shoot would begin to grow. It's judgment, salvation. But it's not just judgment, salvation for God's people, and then that's it. Do you remember how we summarized the gospel in Isaiah? The story of how God saves his people through judgment for the transformation of the world. For the transformation of the world. And that's where we arrive at Isaiah chapter 11. The transformation of the world. That's what we've just seen in verses 6 to 9. The whole world spectacularly transformed. The world as utopia. A better place, a good place, a perfect place. The question is, how do we arrive there? After Assyria cuts down Israel in the north in judgment, and after the Babylonians cut down Judah in the south, how do God's people reach utopia? After all that we've seen happening in our world around us, how do we reach utopia? Well, the answer is in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The stump is the result of judgment on Judah. They were cut down as a nation. But note the contrast to Assyria. Look at chapter 10, verse 33 to 34 in just the previous verses. Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. That is God's curse on Assyria. Now note the contrast with Judah. Assyria is likened to a forest of trees that are felled just like Judah is likened to a tree that will be felled. While Assyria is used to bring judgment on Israel and Judah, in the end, God will judge them. They will be felled, just like they felled Judah. Only there's a difference. There is no shoot that will grow from the stumps of Assyria. But for Judah, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. See the contrast? The one is a final judgment with no restoration, no revival. The other is a stump that produces a shoot. And this is what will bring about the transformation of the world. The fruit spoken of here, and he shall bear fruit, is a redeemed Judah, a redeemed people of God, and a transformed world. The world is heading for utopia, for a perfect place, because of a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Because of one man, a king. Now this focus on a coming king has been slowly building in the book of Isaiah. Um, if I, again, excuse my British illustrations, but... Uh, on different occasions in uh, the calendar year in the UK, uh, the Queen appears on the balcony of Buckingham Palace uh, at weddings, at special anniversaries. And when she's appearing that day, the cameras are there, the crowds are there waiting, and there are different signs that she's about to appear. Uh, you see people 
behind the windows, moving around, this flurry of activity. And the cameras start talking about uh, what's going on. And then people come out and they lay the red uh, cloth over the balcony. We're waiting for the queen. And then the doors open. And then she appears and waves to the people. There's all these anticipations. There's all these signs that she's coming. And that's a bit like the appearance of the king in Isaiah. There's a bit of preparation before he comes. Come with me again uh, to the beginning of the book. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And then chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So we have this focus on Judah. And we have a focus on the capital city, Jerusalem. That's like the red draped banner being put on the balcony. And then in chapter 1, verse 9, uh, we have the mention of survivors after the judgment. And then in chapter 4, verse 2 to 4, Isaiah introduces us to one of his favorite pictures, this tree, a branch, a stump with shoots. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So here is a branch among the survivors. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. And then in chapter 6, verse 13, we saw last night, the holy seed is its stump. So you have this group of survivors and it's talking about a branch that's going to come, a stump, a shoot that will, will grow out of this group of survivors. The holy seed is its stump. Now that word seed in Hebrew, serah, it is only ever used in the singular. It's used in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. And it can be used collectively as a group of people, as an offspring collectively, or it can be used as a single offspring. Here in chapter 6, verse 13, we're not told, is the Holy Seed this group of survivors? Or is the Holy Seed a single person? Well, chapter 7, verse 14, we start to see that the seed, the survivors, becomes focused on a son, on a child. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then we're told that it's not just a son that's coming. Chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see that? The sun among these survivors, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, he will be a king. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And now we come to chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. You see how the information is narrowing us down to a single man coming from the line of a man called Jesse. Here is the holy seed, the royal child, the coming king. So do you see how Isaiah prepares us for his coming? He's been dropping information into his prophecy as it's developing. But the question is, why the mention of Jesse? Well, Jesse was the father of David, who was anointed by God to be king over his people Israel. David is presented as the ideal king to all the kings that come after him. All the kings are compared to David. This king walked in the ways of his father, David. So David is the ideal king. But if we're talking about the line of David, why does Isaiah not say, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of David? Why Jesse? Well, the stump of Jesse suggests that this world transformation will occur not through the pomp and ceremony of David's established dynasty. The shoot that will grow, the king that will come, will have humble, peasant beginnings, just like Jesse. Jesse wasn't from royal lineage. Jesse was just a farmer, just a peasant, humble beginnings. Of course, he was the king of David after David was chosen, but he was a farmer, humble beginnings. And that, I think, is one of the things this communicates. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of humility, from the stump of obscurity, from working class background. But I think there's more than that. By going back to Jesse, Isaiah takes us back to the beginning of the Davidic dynasty, which means that this coming king will not just be a king in the line of David, at the end of David, who descends from David. No, there's a sense in which he will be a new David, another David, because he's going to come from Jesse, not from David, if you like. And this new Davidic king will bear fruit the salvation of God's people, and the transformation of the world. And this passage shows us four things about this coming king. We've already seen he's coming from the stump of Jesse, humble beginnings, a new David, not just a descendant of David. But it also shows us four things about this king and how he will take us to utopia. First, the king's spirit. And if we want to understand how is this king going to get us to utopia, to the perfect place, well, we have to understand who he is. What's he like? So verses 2 and 3, the king's spirit. 
and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. If there's one thing that our politicians show us, it is that no person has the ability in themselves to deliver all that they promise. Politicians make great promises, and they also make great liars because they never deliver. Because as people, they are ultimately failures. They're men and women with feet of clay. They lack composite wisdom. They lack comprehensive understanding of all the things they have to do and the decisions they have to make. They lack wisdom and courage to make the right decision in a moment of stress or pressure. They fear too much what others will think, especially the media. And so they constantly pander to popular opinion. If there's one thing that our politicians show us, it is that no person has the ability in themselves to deliver all that they promise. And as you read the Bible storyline, one of the things you realize is that the, an unaided human cannot achieve much. God at all. Look back at Isaiah 20, chapter 2, verse 22. Isaiah 2, verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Remember I said last night that one of the things Isaiah keeps saying to the people is, don't trust in man, trust in God. Because men will let you down. Men cannot take us to utopia. Men and women are mortals. They have feet of clay. And they cannot do much for God in and of themselves. This is made clear with different leaders in Israel's history. Samson cannot do anything on himself. He, by himself, he needs the Spirit of God to rush upon him to show his strength. Saul and David are anointed with the Spirit in order to perform their kingly office. Man, without the Spirit of God, cannot do great things for God. And it's the same with this king. The fourfold mention of the Spirit here shows us just how much this king will be dependent on the Spirit of God. The Spirit will give him wisdom and understanding to make wise judicial, prudent judgments and decisions. The Spirit will give him counsel and might, strategy and military strength for battle. The Spirit will give him knowledge and fear of the Lord, a life lived before God in reverence. And this king will delight in fearing God. He will not care what others think. He will live only for an audience of one, for God. He will seek one person's approval not the people's approval. So one thing is clear. This coming king, this new David, this stump from the, a shoot from the stump of Jesse will bring about utopia first because he is given the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God rests upon him. It's the first thing we read about this king who will take us to utopia. The second is the king's manner. The king's manner, verse 3 
B, the five. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The defining marks of this king's manner is righteousness and faithfulness. In verse 4, he'll assess the needs of the poor and the humble and rightly decide the best way to help them and bring justice. In verse 5, he'll judge the wicked because he possesses the moral rectitude to do so. In verse 6, righteousness and faithfulness will adorn his character in all that he does. The belt was an undergarment. After you strip away everything else, what you find is a deep, unshakable, unwavering commitment for what is right and true in everything. Know of any such leader like that in history? Churchill? Margaret Thatcher? Ronald Reagan? Mahatma Gandhi? Nelson Mandela? Barack Obama? Donald Trump? Every leader wheels and deals, negotiates, compromises gives favors and expects them in return in order to favor their own agenda. Every leader can spin a story, twist a decision to make it work for them, but not this king. Righteousness and faithfulness adorn his character. This king is sort of godlike in that sense because righteousness and faithfulness are defining terms of God's character in the Bible. There's something more that makes this king godlike. Verse 3, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide, decide disputes by what his ears hear. The best of human kings and queens and prime ministers and presidents, the best of human judges can make the best use of their minds and of their intellectual faculties to make fair and reasoned decisions and judgments, but they all fail. Just look at the number of appeals we have today in civil courts. Why? Because absolute justice requires absolute knowledge. And no judge, no president, no prime minister, no queen possesses absolute knowledge to make an absolutely just decision. But this king will have it. Because he won't judge by what he sees or hears. He'll judge by what can't be seen, by what can't be heard. He will judge because he can see the heart which man cannot see. He'll judge by absolute knowledge. It's the perfect combination because when you have a king endowed with the Spirit of God and you have a king adorned with righteousness and faithfulness in his character well, then you have the potential for a kingdom of righteousness and truth. And when you have such a kingdom, well, then you're on your way to utopia, to a good place, which is what we find arrives under this king's reign. The king's reign. We've seen the king's spirit, the king's manner, and now the king's 
reign, verses 6 to 9. If there's one thing these verses show us, it is the king's reign produces utopia, a good place, or perhaps better, Eden-topia, a paradise place, a perfect place. Eden in Genesis means paradise, perfection, delight. Because as Isaiah describes this place, he pictorializes it for us with echoes from Eden. Remember, Isaiah is the great artist painting pictures for us. Well, look at the pictures that he paints and what they communicate. Reconciliation of old hostilities, verse 6. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The word dwell here, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Uh, literally means welcome as a temporary resident. It's, the, it's a welcome of hospitality. We've all heard of the three little pigs. Little pig, little pig, let me in. Pigs, not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. Why? Because wolves eat pigs. They also eat lambs. But look at that first line of verse 6. The lamb will welcome the wolf into their home. It is the reconciliation of old hostilities. The dominion of power over the dominion of weakness is neutralized as the lamb invites the wolf for dinner. It's a picture of the predator and the prey living and eating together. A picture of peaceful reconciliation as are the other pictures of the leopard and the young goat and the calf and the lion. These animals, which would normally be predator and prey, they are neutralized into a peaceful relationship. And then there is the child who leads them. You go to the zoo, see a lion or a gorilla, you don't let your child go into the cage. There needs to be a fence between them. And if ever there was a picture of absolute safety and security and peace, it is this, a child shall lead the leopard and the wolf and the lion. Remember the four-year-old boy who fell into the cage of Harambe, the gorilla, here in America at the zoo a few years ago? Well, what happened to Harambe, the gorilla? He got a bullet in the head. Why? Because he was a danger to that little child. Because even though the child had not been viciously, viciously attacked by the gorilla, the gorilla was sitting there with the child in front of him. There was no safety for the child. So they took the gorilla out. But one day in this king's kingdom, a little toddler will take Harambe's by the hand and walk them. A child will lead the wolf and the leopard and the lion. They will officiate over the animal kingdom because life there will be so peaceful. Old hostilities will be reconciled. That's the first thing this picture of utopia communicates. Second, there will be a transformation of old natures. A transformation of old natures. Verse 7. The cow, the 
cow, as we say here, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. You see the transformation of natures from carnivores to herbivores. There will be a change in eating habits. Everyone will be on the same diet. Just like back in Eden, when God said every green plant was good for food, to every for every creeping thing, every bird, every beast, and every person. The mention of their young indicates that the change is permanent. This is a return to an Eden-like state, to an unfallen nature. There's a permanent transformation of old natures back to original natures, and it will be permanent. And then the third thing, these pictures communicate is the elimination of the old curse. We have the reconciliation of old hostilities, the transformation of old natures back to an Eden-like state, and now you have the elimination of the old curse, verse 8 and 9. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. He shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Here is a picture of total vulnerability. A suckling baby putting his hand where it doesn't realize there is danger over the hole of a cobra, over the den of an adder. I remember when we were brought up in Africa, in Tanzania, one of the things we did as kids uh, is, believe it or not, we would go looking for snakes and scorpions. Not because we thought we could play with them, but because we knew they were dangerous and finding and killing them was all part of the thrill. And if we ever did find them, we kept our distance. We used a big long stick to poke the scorpion uh, once we find this huge uh, cobra snake uh, up in a tree. And we called some of the village uh, teenage boys to come. And with their bows and arrows, they shot this snake out of the tree and killed it. I remember on one occasion, as we were playing at the house, we had a little boy, Daniel, who we were looking after, about two years old, and he came round the corner with a black scorpion in his hand, alive, going, doo-doo, dead, doo-doo. The only thing was the doo-doo wasn't dead. The next thing, total mayhem, as we all try to convince Daniel to put the scorpion down. It's like we entered hostage negotiations. Parents were out. Everyone's trying to talk to this boy. Just put it, gently put it down. Don't touch it. Had it by the tail. This thing was wriggling around. Such commotion. Why? Because he was in such danger. Ignorant of the danger, but still in danger. But what a picture here in Isaiah. The child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. There will be no danger. There will be no death. Perfection with the elimination of the curse. Because that's what sin brought into the world. It brought danger. It brought death. It brought destruction. And now here's a child playing 
over the very places of danger and potential death. I'm sure you can see the echoes of Genesis 3.15 here where an offspring, a son of the woman is promised who will crush the serpent's head. The picture here is the end of the conflict. The king's reign will completely remove that old enmity, that old curse of injury and death and universal peace will reign. He's not saying that the devil will be reconciled, the serpent, the devil will be reconciled and will play with children. No, he's talking about just the elimination of all that the devil brought into this world. And so Isaiah gives us the reason why this king's reign will lead to utopia, to Eden-topia. Verse 9, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Because everyone will know God. That is why there will be perfection. Everyone will know God. The knowledge of Him will be unrestricted. It will not be restricted like it is today on the earth. No, the earth will be full of the knowledge of God. And to make the point, Isaiah gives us an analogy, another picture. It will be full as the waters cover the sea. Now, just think about what he just said there. Okay, You have to read that a second time. As the waters cover the sea, uh, should he not have said as the waters cover the earth? i.e. they are all over the earth, like the knowledge of God is all over the earth. But he doesn't say that. He says, the knowledge of God, the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. The waters cover seas? It's a bit like saying, as the Irish sea is cold. In other words, there's no part of the Irish sea that is not cold. Trust me on that one. Uh, it is Baltic, as we say, like the Baltic Sea, always freezing. And there's no part of the seas that are not covered in water. See what he's saying? This is going to be inevitable. This future Eden-topia. There will not be a single part of it that will not be full of the knowledge of God. A hundred percent saturation as the waters cover the seas. If you can find a place without the knowledge of God, then you could find a part of the sea that doesn't have water in it. You can find a part of the Irish Sea that's not cold. And trust me, there's no part of the Irish Sea that's not cold. It's a beautiful picture in the analogy of the certainty and the scale and the concentration by which the world will be transformed under this king's reign. It will be transformed back to what it was like, hence the echoes of Eden. But it will be transformed a hundred percent. And that is what it is, a return to Eden. Only it's better than Eden. The Bible knows no such storyline of a big bang and billions of years of nothingness and then cellular life and struggling and suffering and death and evolution. Oh, and then there's this new creation. This is where I think theistic evolution is wrong. 
because it forgets the big picture of the Bible. The Bible's move is from creation to new creation, from a garden paradise to a new garden paradise. It's why the fall is called the fall, because this world was originally good. It was originally like this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 to 9, and it fell from that state. And this king is going to recover it. He's going to redeem it like it was there in the beginning. These pictures of Isaiah don't come out of nowhere or mean nothing because if the wolf and the lamb never lay down together in harmony to begin with, if the lion and the calf never lay down then to begin with, then what is this all about? But what Isaiah wants us to see is that the reign of this king will restore Eden. It will take the back the world back to Eden. It will be a recovered topia, a restored topia. Utopia will be Eden topia. But it will be better than Eden. The story of the Bible does not go from new creation, uh, from creation to new creation on the same level. Read Revelation 21 and 22. You see that it goes from a garden to a garden city. It goes up a level. And this picture here uh, contributes to that idea. There will be this absolute perfection that will be on another level even to what there was in the Garden of Eden. So that is what we see under this king's reign, Eden-topia. We've seen the king's spirit, the king's manner, and now the king's reign, Eden-topia. And finally, the king's exodus. The king's exodus, verses 10 to 16. We've seen how a certain kind of king with a certain kind of reign will bring about a certain kind of world, utopia. But now we see one more aspect of how he will bring it about. He will bring it about by an exodus. And here Isaiah changes two things in the description of this coming king. He changes first the description of the king from a stump or a shoot to a root, verse 10. And then he changes the picture of this coming king. So let me deal with the first one, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. The root of Jesse. I thought it was the shoot of Jesse. Now, some people think root is a synonym for shoot, but we all know that a root is not a shoot. So how do we get our heads around this? We, th I thought Isaiah said this king would be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now he's saying he's the root of Jesse. King will come after Jesse as his shoot, but this king will also be before Jesse as his root. He is a descendant of Jesse, yes, and he will also be the origin of Jesse. Shoot and root. Isaiah also changes the picture from a shoot, root, to a signal. A banner, verse 10. Who shall stand as a signal, a banner for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire 
and his resting place shall be glorious. First he was a shoot and then a root that produced fruit, the fruit of his kingdom. And now he is a banner flying high as a meeting point. I don't know if you've ever been in a big famous city, um, an, an old ancient city. Um, but in Cambridge where I live, uh, you know, your buildings there from the 13th, 14th, 15th century. So it's full of tourists. There's about four to five million tourists come through Cambridge every year. Cambridge is a town, city of about 200,000 people. Okay, so constant line of tourists. And one of the things you'll see all the time in the city is a guide walking and what they have is a big banner, a big flag up on a big pole because all their teenage tourists get lost all the time. And what's the banner doing? It's the point of gathering. If you see the banner, you go and you gather around the person holding the banner. It's to remind people where to gather. And this king is described as a banner for peoples to gather around. There's an international feel to it. In verse 12, we have uh, the dispersed of Judah coming from the four corners of the earth. Uh, but then, um, so you've got this international feel across the earth. But then it becomes more focused on the remnant because before the nations can gather, sorry, verse 11, uh, the remnant of, of the remains of his people from all these parts of the earth, the four corners coming. Uh, but then it starts to focus on the remnant. Verse uh, 11, they come from the different corners of the earth, north, south, east, west. And then verse 12 and 13 the unity is restored. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Ephraim was the name for the northern kingdom. So it's talking about the reunification of north and south. They will no longer fight each other. They will now be united. And this return of the exiles from the four corners of the earth a united Israel coming to gather around the king who is the banner. It's described in the terms of an exodus, verse 15 and 16. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. You hear the echoes here of the exodus out of Egypt? And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of the remains of his people as there was for Israel when they come up, when they came up from the land of Egypt. You see it? The transformation of the world will come about by a king who has the Spirit of God resting on him, whose character is adorned with righteousness and faithfulness, and who himself will be an exodus for people living in slavery. This king is a banner for the peoples of the world to gather around. And he will find a glorious resting place and the nations will gather to him. So we've seen four things about this king. We've seen his spirit. We've seen uh, the, his character, his reign. And now we see that he is um, a banner producing this exodus. And so we're left asking ourselves, who is this king that Isaiah is speaking about? 
Well, Hezekiah showed some traits of this king. He had counsel, wisdom, and power. He strategized well. He was courageous against the Assyrian king. But he also failed. And so this passage leaves us looking for another king, a new David from the stump of Jesse. But a David from the stump of Jesse, he can also be the root of Jesse, the origin of Jesse. A king with absolute knowledge to administer absolute justice. A king whose reign brings about utopia, Edentopia. A king who himself becomes the signal, the banner for a new exodus out of slavery. And that king is none other than Jesus Christ. Because he was not just another king in the line of Davidic kings. He was a new David, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, from a humble peasant background. He established a new dynasty, like a new David. And he was not just the shoot of Jesse, he was the root of Jesse, God's eternal son. Jesse came from Jesus before Jesus came from Jesse. Just like the kings in the Old Testament, Jesus was endowed by the Spirit of God. Remember at his baptism, the Spirit of God descends upon him to give him the wisdom, to give him the courage, the strength to do his ministry and to go into the wilderness and fight that great serpent. And from there, after being led into the wilderness to be tempted, he proved himself to be a man of wisdom, integrity, righteousness in the face of evil. And Jesus himself is presented to us in Matthew's gospel as a new exodus. Remember the genealogy in Matthew's gospel? Matthew gets to the end and he says, let me structure the genealogy for you. There were 14 generations from Abraham to David. There were 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon. And there were 14 generations from the exile to Babylon to, and we expect them to say, to the return to the land with Ezra and Nehemiah. But he doesn't say that. He says there were 14 generations from the exile in Babylon to the Christ. Because Christ is the banner of the exodus. He is the one who brings about the exodus in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And therefore, people are drawn to him from every nation. In John 12, we read that when he is lifted up, he will draw all peoples to himself. And when he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and found his glorious resting place that Isaiah speaks about at the Father's right hand, What did he start to do? He sent the Spirit into the world who is gathering the nations to this banner, to this meeting place, the heavenly Jerusalem where the King reigns. And it is this King, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is taking us to a better place. Do not be afraid. I go away to prepare a place for you. And when I go away, I shall come again. And the king is coming, friends. And he's taking us to Edentopia. And it's going to be amazing. Let us pray. Father God, you 
have planned that the perfect world you made, which fell into sin through the first Adam, would be restored by a second and last Adam. So we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and how you gave him your Holy Spirit to fulfill his work on earth, to bring about that exodus, to lead us on the highway back to Eden-topia. We pray that you would make us excited and thrilled at the prospect that as a pilgrim people, that is where our King is leading us. We lift our eyes, we pray, from the horizon of this world and the fleeting passions of it, and lift our eyes to that glorious new heavens and new earth that awaits us. We ask all this in Christ's strong name. Amen.